6 a.m. on the West Coast. What are you doing up this early? 9 a.m. on the East Coast of America. It's 2 p.m. in London, England. 7.30 in Mumbai, India. 11 p.m. in Kyoto, Japan. And in Malaysia, it remains 1984. I'm Jay Sheldon. I'm not wearing pants. Again. Welcome in. Welcome to Wednesday. Well, our Wednesday is almost done. Almost over. But, uh, yeah, we're halfway through the week. My company actually decided to move our holiday from Tuesday, which was typosum, to Friday. So we get a three-day weekend. So tomorrow technically is like my Friday, which is a really good thing. <laughs> All right, we're live on Facebook, YouTube, Rumble.com, and Twitch.tv. Welcome in to all our viewers across the planet. And you may also be watching the video replay because our show is available on Rumble.com, YouTube, and Facebook. Anytime, every time, all 166 shows. 166 shows! Can you believe it? I think we, we, we are live Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Saturday. I think we've only missed like two or three shows in the last year plus. It's been over a year now. So, wow. And thank you so much to all of our podcast listeners. The audio part, part of our show is put up as a podcast. It's on all the platforms, no matter where you find your podcast. doesn't matter. Uh, Google Podcast, uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, of course. Uh, yeah, my number's almost up there with Joe Rogan. <laughs> Not. Um, and All right, all right. A uh, little delayed reaction there. And, uh, you know, Stitcher, we're, we're on all of them, including Geo7. I hope I'm saying it right. That's a big podcast out, outlet in uh, India where we have a substantial audience. Thank you guys for all your downloads and your follows. I really appreciate it. Across the U.S., the U.K., New Zealand, Australia, uh, a few people in Germany who listen in or watch into the show, we thank you for that. Uh, we got a lot to cover tonight, and you know, it's weird, because I always get, I save these things as I find them throughout the week, but I get to a few hours before the show, or the afternoon of the day of a show, and I think, do I have enough material? What am I going to talk about? And you know what? It never fails. We always have enough to talk about. It's mostly crap because that's what we do on this show. You should probably change the name to the mostly crap show. But, uh, you know, we, we don't cover a whole lot of controversial stuff. We do a little bit. Uh, mostly it's stuff that affects me directly here in Malaysia. But, uh, you know, sometimes we, we do. But we, we like to share the, the weird, unusual, strange things we find or the funny stuff or the poignant stuff. And uh, so... That's a big part of our uh, program. Another thing we always do on a regular basis is update you on this little lady. Miko Update. Miko Update, who uh, she's not sleeping in the air con tonight. She's actually downstairs in the living room, kind of hanging out. Uh, doing great. No big deals. Eating me out of house and home as usual. There's not a whole lot to update, except I weighed her last night. An average female Shiba Inu weighs around nine kilos. 
kilos, about nine kilos. She's 11.8 kilos. And she's not fat. You've seen her on the show. You've seen her pictures. I share them all the time. She's truly not fat at all. But she's solid as a rock. And she just, as of last night, 11.8, almost 12 kilos. Wow. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know what else to say. She's she's a heavy dog. Yeah. Uh, but she's, she's doing great. All right. So our story tonight includes uh, tattoos, getting out of prison, RFIDs, which is the radio frequency uh, toll booth tag we use here in Malaysia. There's a bunch of different ways you can pay for tolls on these idiot toll booth highways. And uh, the company that runs this, uh, just apparently they all sit down at the table and say, okay, how can we screw things up for the public? And when they come up with an idea, a lot of times they'll say, nah, nah, that's not good enough. Make it better. Make it even more screwy. Make it more difficult. Think I'm kidding? Hang on. We'll talk about it. All right. Tattoos. I found the coolest thing. And while I'm doing these stories, I'm just going to let you check this out because it's, uh, it's tattoo artists who have shared horror stories about their customers. Trust me, they are weird. This is There's a link in our uh, description tonight, our show notes down below. You can check out the whole article. But um, this is from mames.com. I've been pretty lucky in the grand scheme of things, this one tattoo artist says, my worst reactive annoying client was the dude who was very clearly a drug addict. He came in, wanted a simple tribal tattoo on his stomach. I saw, sure, I said, sure, no problem. He started uh, hagging me about the price. Uh, at first, it was 400 bucks. Then he said he no more than 200 and finally settled on 300 for uh, after about 20 minutes back and forth. So we're all set up. We start the tattoo. And within a minute, he says he needs to stand up because he's in too much pain needs to walk around. So he walks around two, three minutes, lays back down, gets tattooed for another couple of minutes, and then does the same thing all over again. Constantly throughout the entire tattoo, and during this time he was scratching his head and twitching all over and complaining loudly. The worst part wasn't the fact that this two-hour tattoo turned into almost four hours. The worst was that he kept going out for smoke breaks, but kept only taking two or three puffs, putting it out, and then putting the smoke back in his pocket. So he could smell, the tattoo artist could smell the whole time, was musty cigarettes. It was freaking disgusting, he writes. The cigarette smell, old cigarettes. If, if you ever smelled old cigarettes, you know what he's talking about here. And he also kept putting it in the pocket that was right beside his face gross <laughs> anyway um not an artist this is a second story not an artist but just got my first tattoo and asked her this question she had a woman come in with her boyfriend to get a tattoo the lady screamed after the needle first came down and told her boyfriend 
that she was going to have to bite him in order to cope with the pain. She chomped on his arm the whole time while moaning and screaming. Uh, my tattoo artist told me she thinks it was some weird kinky thing uh, that she didn't consent to participate in. So there you go. Do you have a tattoo, by the way? I know uh, lots of my friends do. I have one. I have one. I don't know if you can see it, actually. Yeah, there you go. I have one on my arm here. And the design, it just looks like a pair of wings. And it actually is representative of wings, but it's an ancient uh, American Indian design uh, about uh, life. And it has some meaning. I, I kind of re I adapted an American Indian design. All my life, I'd wanted to have a tattoo. And um, I originally wanted to put this on the small of my back, down by top of my butt kind of area. And I heard that that is the most sensitive place you can get a tattoo because every other place on your body, you've got fat and nerve endings, but the fat helps to deaden the nerves a bit. But down there in that spot, ain't nothing but skin and nerves and bone. So that I've been told or I was told, is the most sensitive place to get a tattoo. I also always wanted an armband. So I started with this one. This was, I think I've had this for 25 years now. It's faded a lot. But um, I started with this, and then I thought eventually I could continue it and create a whole armband, and I just never did. So there you go. All right. Uh, there's a whole bunch of these weird stories from people who've come in for tattoos and uh, strange things. But um, <laughs> you got to read through this. It, it, it's just weird. Uh, I was asked this question. If every tattoo artist I go to, the latest tattoos I got were just above the back of my knees. It didn't tickle, but it was fine. The girl... The girl the bed over from me is getting a really cool-looking owl on her thigh, and she was crying the whole time, um, sniffing, wiping tears, whimpering occasionally. I asked my question. We had a guy come in here last year for his first, and he passed out and peed himself. I didn't know a human could hold so much urine. The tattoo artist doing the towel ta owl tattoo chimes in, and said, I had a guy throw up a few weeks ago. The whole studio stank really bad. They swapped other stories, uh, but uh, those were the best ones. Uh, and love these stories so much, as well as the questions every time I answer one. Oh, man. This, this just goes on and on and on. You got to check it out. It's from mames.com, and it's about the downsides of getting tattoos. Uh, somebody asked, did it hurt? No, um... It didn't really. It, it felt, it wasn't even as bad as like a, a needle, a, a vaccine. Um, it was like a, like a cat scratch a little bit, a little less than that. You know, on a one to 10 scale, it was maybe for me anyway, here it was maybe a four. Um, the thing is though, that it's not just one little scratch. It's like, and it keeps going for a long time. And then when they fill in the outline, that's when it starts. It, it's annoying, I think, would be a better word than painful. So if you are thinking about getting a tattoo, keep that in mind. There's all kinds of amazing. Oh, man, look at this one. 
I don't know, do I have my, uh, my mouse back? I'm not sure if I do or not. Um, yeah, there you go. Look at that one right there. Can you imagine what that must have felt like on the top of her foot? Youch. This is beautiful here. Oh, wait, you can't see it. Here we go. There we go. Look at that one. That's beautiful. Again, if you're listening on the podcast, sorry, check out the video. It's about uh, 12 minutes in, 13 minutes in, if you want to go jump ahead and check out the tattoos here. They're just amazing. And by the way, these are all safe pictures. I normally have my safe search turned off. But if you're going to search for tattoos and you don't have a safe search on, you might be a little surprised at the places people get mm, tattoos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Some of it's not pretty. Hang on, I need a coffee break. <laughs> okay, so that's the tattoo stories. Just check it out. There's, there's like 10, 20 of them in this link below from meme.com and memes.com. You got you to gotta check it out. All right. Another very cool thing, I don't usually like to use BuzzFeed because they're full of crap. The website is an absolute joke, and I don't want to give them any more clicks than they don't already deserve, which is none. But this was cool. Sometimes, you know, never mind news. If you're going to get your news from BuzzFeed, you might as well just make it up yourselves because that's about what's over there. However, they do some lifestyle reporting, which is kind of cool. So do not rely on BuzzFeed for news. You can Check the link down below here. And this is ex-prisoners who share the things they were most shocked to discover about the world when they got out. A Reddit uh, thread uh, asked users, people who did a long time in prison, what was your biggest shock from the outside world? Because think about it. If you were sentenced to 20, even 10, 20, 30, 40 years in prison. Your world is inside that prison for all that time. Uh, I, you get news and things. I worked as a corrections officer for a number of years. Um, it was a jail, not a prison, pretrial, detainees. But um, it's a different world, my friends. It's a different world. And because the world we live in today changes almost by the second, imagine someone who got 30 years in prison. They went in, this is what, 2022, so they went in at the end of the last century. And you think about what, say, 1992, 98, whatever it is, 1992, Compared to 2022, what it is today, which is, would that be 30 years? I think my math sucks. Anyway, imagine the changes that we've seen in just those 30 years. The thread very quickly went viral. Former prisoners and their loved ones shared stories about their experiences uh, after years behind bars. And they share a bunch of them here in this BuzzFeed article. The link is in our show notes tonight. My father was incarcerated from 2003 to 2016, and the biggest shock for him was technology and how much McDonald's had raised their prices. (laughs) One of the hardest things for me when I got out was making choices. Let me explain. In prison, you might have two choices for shampoo, if you're lucky. 
The first time I went shopping for hygiene essentials was at Target. I remember being so overwhelmed by the amount of choices for something as simple as shampoo and having no idea which one to get. Stood in the aisle and actually cried for a few minutes before I just left without getting anything. Now, I know right now there's all kinds of supply chain problems in the U.S., and you're lucky if you even have a single bottle of shampoo on the shelf. But uh, imagine spending 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in jail, having very little choice, and then you walk into a grocery store and you see an aisle end-to-end filled with hundreds of choices of shampoo. It has to be incredibly overwhelming. We don't think about these things, do we? Uh, Just money in general, another user wrote. You have no idea how to handle money, and that takes some time to get used to. Uh, Just some, some former prisoner wrote, just got out. The weirdest thing was seeing all these damn scooters laying everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, because I suppose after a time, uh, we wouldn't have had those scooter things. My old boss spent seven years behind bars and said the morning he got out, his grandmother picked him up and they went to Target. Target's a big grocery department store in the U.S. He said his eyes hurt because he hadn't seen the color red in years. Isn't that weird? Uh, My brother only did a year, but he was let out with a guy who did 30 plus years. And he tells the story of him having to explain a smartphone to the other guy. Imagine anything you want, whenever you want, whatever you want to know, and it's now on your phone. And one more, there's a bunch more, I'm not going to share them all, but you do check out the article. My uncle had been in prison for about 30 years, and he couldn't believe that you can just order stuff from the internet, and it would be delivered right to your door. So he ordered dinner from Seamless, my treat, and he practically power walked to the door when the bell rang. He swung the door open and enthusiastically greeted the delivery boy, because That's something that 30 years ago just didn't exist. It's really cool. You know, it's not something you think about hardly at all, if ever. But when I saw the article, I thought, yeah, that's that's cool. I wanted to share that with you. Check it out. There's more stories there. There's there's a whole bunch of stories, like 15, 20 different, 20 over stories, more than that. Uh, Some rather cool experiences that people have had um, with um, life after being behind bars. All right, technology, technology. Apparently, here in Malaysia, we're still having trouble keeping up. We have toll highways here. We have several methods of paying for the tolls. Originally, it was just a touch-and-go card, which is a card that you top up with money. And then there's these little boxes with sensors, and you just touch it, the gate opens, and you go. Well, that's how you're supposed to do it. Most people will stop, put the car in park, roll down the window, get out their purse, get out the wallet, reach in, 
fumble around for a minute or two, get the card out, touch the card on the sensor, put it back in their wallet carefully, fold it, you're getting the idea? Fold it, put it back in the purse, put the purse back on the seat, roll up the window, put it in park, and then go. It's called touch and go. Seriously, you think I'm kidding? I've seen that happen. I've seen that happen. Anyway, since then, we have smart tags, which is a little box that trans, you put your touch and go card in it and it transmits to this receiver and when you get close enough, the gate flies open and through you go. The latest mess we have here is an RFID tag, which is some sort of near field sensing sort of thing. It sticks on the front bumper of your car and you top it up online, apparently. It's simple and easy to do, they say. Uh, and when you pull up again, pull up to the sensor, the gate opens and through you go. Problem is, either the sensors fail or the idiot drivers fail because they don't have enough money in the car, they didn't know that, they weren't paying attention, whatever. You know, I've said this before. They don't make the roads and the rules and the lights and the traffic to screw up traffic. They make it to, well, for the most part, they make it to try and ease the traffic, to control the traffic. I'm gonna, I was going to say 80, I'm going to back it down to 70% of the time, maybe 60% of the time. The problem isn't the lights or the toll booths or the roadways or the intersections. It's the drivers. It's you. You idiots who don't pay attention, don't get in the right lane, try and sneak up and cut everybody else off. That just happened tonight. We're on our way to dinner. There's two lanes to turn right. There's two lanes to go straight. People are in that third lane and then try and sneak over to take a right to get ahead of traffic because these two are right turning lanes are backed up. It's you buttheads that screw it up for everybody else and it happens all the time. Now, Having blamed you for a great deal of the problems we have, I'm not going to do that in this case, because in this case, I completely blame the morons who run this plus highway system. I'm not kidding. I said in the beginning of the show, they must sit around a table and say, how can we screw this up more for people? How can we make drivers' lives more difficult? Yeah, Come up with an idea that's the most difficult thing we can do for drivers on the road and we'll times 10 it and make it worse. They've put the RFID. You see here, this is what our toll booths look like. Let me get my mouse back. You've got a touch and go lane. And there's no more cash lanes. Sometimes all the way over on the side, there'll be a cash lane. But a lot of highways don't have them anymore. So if you, if you don't have your toll card or your touch and go or you're not topped up, you're screwed. I don't know how you're going to get around it because there's no cash lane, literally none. So we've got a lane for a smart tag. We've got a lane for touch and go. We've got a lane for RFID, okay? 
And you got to pick the right lane. You got to figure out which lane. You got to hope some moron is not, doesn't have enough money to get through the toll. They do have some live people to go around and, you know, fix problems. Not enough, but they have them. Here's my thing. Why can't you just put all three sensors in one lane? Don't tell me the frequencies will interfere with each other. Bullcrap. They completely operate on completely different frequencies. The RFID sensor is not big. It's a little stand box. The, the smart tag sensor also not complicated. doesn't take up a lot of space. It's maybe a meter high, little square. And the touch and go tag. Why can't you just put all three of them at every single toll lane on the highway? So it doesn't matter what toll line you get in. You can't get in a wrong lane. And whatever you have to touch or to censor, it opens. Is that that difficult? It's not rocket science. But no, we've got one lane for RFID, one lane for smart tags, one lane for touch and go. Come on. Just put all three sensors in every lane and we're done with this stupid freaking problem. But no, 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 no. We've got to, we've got to make it as complicated as we can. Here's, just to give you an idea, this bit of a search here. This, I see this smart tag lanes. All the, there's a sensor here. All these kind of, this is all the devices. Touch it. This is what we have in Malaysia. Whatever country you are listening or watching in, I'm sure your system is different. But you see here, smart tag and RFID combined. So they can combine them. All you need to do is stick a touch and go sensor in the booth and you're done. Do that with all the lanes, you morons. But no, that would make life easy and perhaps a little faster for everybody. And that's apparently not the job of the people who run the plus highways. Their job is to screw things up as much as they possibly can. Okay. So, we're done with that little rant. Mm. By the way, I got Tom Sawyer coming up. We're going to do chapter seven tonight. I think it's seven. Uh, okay. <coughs> Saw this article in Siakapkali. Uh, Siakapkali. See a cupkali? Am I saying that right? See a cupkali dot my. Links in the show notes in the description down below here. You'll see it. Uh, we have a big problem in this country. We've had a big problem for a long time. Uh, we probably won't have that problem too much longer because once they get through cutting down all of our millions of years old rainforests and destroying the environment, there won't be any more to destroy. They will have paved paradise and Put up a freaking parking lot, as Joni said. This article, I've had it translated into English because it's in uh, BM. But uh, this article includes an amazing video. We have tigers, although we have a very dwindling supply of Malaysian tigers here. But um, as if to stop their habitat from being explored, tigers suddenly appears while the workers are clearing some land. You see this? Look at that. Check this out. That is actually a wild tiger. And this was shot from the guy, it looks like he's operating a backhoe or something. 
He's actually tearing this guy's house down, virtually. Um, a Sumatra tiger reported to have emerged when workers from Plantation Company in western Pasaman District, West Sumatra, were doing land-clearing works. No surprise there, dumbass. According to Sa'at News, the wildlife seem to be preventing workers from cutting down trees in the forest. Good for you. The video of the tiger appearance, been viral on social media, believed to have been recorded by an employee who was an excavator. There you go. And uh, two videos circulated, the first one taken from the side of the excavator. Tiger seen standing on the ground in a uh, former forest filled with bulldozers, sadly enough. And the animal is seen occasionally walking and then lying down watching the workers' movements. Should have eaten them. Here's the actual video itself. Check this out. Look at that. This guy from inside this excavator. And that is a wild tiger as he destroys its home. And the tiger... Tiger ain't having none of that. Look at that. There he is. Just laying down there checking things out. That is so wild that we live... I live in an amazing country where they actually have these in the wild, in the jungle... Sadly, every day we have less and less. It's uh, it's a shame. And uh, yeah, so do check out the article. Uh, oh, if you open it in the right kind of browser, I know it's in BM. You may not be able to read the Bahasa Malaysia, but you can just click translate, and the translation's pretty good actually on most browsers to uh, to be able to read it in English. Bottom line: stop tearing down the forests. All that money isn't going to do you any good if you don't have a world to live in. All right. A couple quick updates. One, really, and it's something we love talking about on this show. I just want to head you over there. I'm not going to do a lot of a discussion about it, but it is because the James Webb Telescope, which was launched maybe a month ago. We covered it on the show here. But it's up. It's opened. I don't know if it's actually operating, taking pictures yet, looking out into places we have never been able to see or ever been able to see so clearly before. But they have a website, and I put the link in our show notes, and I encourage you, cannot encourage you enough, if you're enough of a space freak like me, please do head over to the James Webb Space Telescope. It's jwst.nasa.gov. And uh, you, you'll see it here. I've got a picture up on the screen of the site, and they've got all these things going on. And I just saw an update today that the the uh, sun reflector shield, whatever that big thing is, has opened fully. It is working. It's successful. And I assume that means we're just about to take our first look into places in the universe that we have never seen or never seen so clearly before. This is exciting. And I promise you I'll continue to share news about it as it becomes available because uh, this is great. I cannot wait to see what the, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope sees. should be very cool. All right. Uh, we've done about 30 minutes or so, and it is time to move to the way we always close out this show for the last 20 minutes or so. That is reading classic books that we get from the Gutenberg Project. Gutenberg.org is the place you will find uh, our books. We've done a ton of them on this show. We've done 
The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, The Little Prince, uh, you name it, we've done them. And uh, we're doing Tom Sawyer from Mark Twain right now. Uh, it's an amazing book. It is uh, from 1876. It's one of the first novels ever actually written on a typewriter, which is a cool little piece of uh, piece of info for you about the book. I do want to, as I always do, let you know that this was written in 1876, and some words in the book were appropriate at the time. They are today considered vulgar. However, we are reading what is written the way it was written originally by Mark Twain. So if those words, including the N-word, by the way, upset you, you might want to just go away and find another show that's for snowflakes. Because we're reading the original Tom Sawyer the way it was meant to be read in, from 1876. And we're at chapter 7. The harder Tom tried to fasten his mind on his book, the more his ideas wandered. So at last, with a sigh and a yawn, he gave it up. It seemed to him that the noon recess would never come. The air was utterly dead. There was not a breath stirring. It was the sleepiest of sleepy days. The drowsing murmur of the five-and-twenty studying scholars soothed the soul like the spell that is in the murmur of bees. Away off in the flaming sunshine, Cardiff Hill lifted its soft green sides through a shimmering veil of heat. Tinted with the purple of distance, a few birds floated on lazy wing high in the air. No other living thing was visible but some cows, and they were asleep. Tom's heart ached to be free, or else have something of interest to do to pass the dreary time. His hand wandered into his pocket, and his face lit up with a glow of gratitude that was a prayer, though he didn't know it. Then, fervently, the percussion cap box came out. He released the tick and put him on the long, flat desk. The creature probably glowed with a gratitude that amounted to prayer, too, at that moment. But it was premature, for when he started thankfully to travel off, Tom turned him aside with a pin and made him take a new direction. Tom's bosom friend sat next to him, suffering just as Tom had been, and now he was deeply and gratefully interested in this entertainment in an instant. This bosom friend was Joe Harper. The two boys were sworn friends all the week and embattled enemies on Saturday. Joe took a pin out of his lapel and began to assist in exercising the prisoner. The sport grew in interest momentarily. Soon Tom and said that they were interfering with each other and neither getting the fullest benefit of the tick. So he put Joe's slate on the desk and drew a line down the middle of it from top to bottom. Now, he said, as long as he's on your side, you can stir him up and I'll let him alone. But if you let him get away and get on my side... You're to leave him alone as long as I can keep him from crossing over. All right, go ahead, start him up. The tick escaped Tom 
presently, crossed the equator. Joe harassed him a while, and then he got away and crossed back again. This change of base occurred often, while one boy was worrying the tick with observing, absorbing interest. The other would look on with interest as strong. The two heads bowed together over the slate, and the two souls dead to all things else. At last, luck seemed to settle and abide with Joe. The tick tried this, that, and the other course, and got as excited and as anxious as the boys themselves. But time and again, just as he would have victory in his very grasp, so to speak, Tom's fingers would be twitching to begin. Joe's pin would deftly head him off and keep possession. At last, Tom could stand it no longer. The temptation was too strong, so he reached out and lent a hand with his pin, and Joe was angry in a moment, said he, Tom, you let him alone. I don't just want to stir him up a little, Joe. No, sir, tain't fair. You just let him alone. Blame it, I ain't going to stir him much. Let him alone, I tell you. I won't. You shall. He's on my side of the line. Look here, Joe Harper, whose is that tick? I don't care whose tick he is. He's on my side of the line, and you shan't touch him. Well, I'll just bet I will, though. He's my tick, and I'll do what I blame please with him or die. A tremendous whack came down on Tom's shoulders, and its duplicate on Joe's. And for the space of two minutes, the dust continued to fly from the two jackets and the whole school to enjoy. The boys had been too absorbed to notice the hush that had stolen upon the school a while before, when the master came tiptoeing down the room and stood over them. He had contemplated a good part of the performance before he contributed his bit of variety to it. When school broke up at noon, Tom flew to Becky Thatcher and whispered in her ear, Put on your bonnet and let Anya go in home. And when you get to the corner, give the rest of them the slip. Turn down through the lane and come back. I'll go the other way and come it over in the same way. So... The one went off with one group of scholars, the other with another. In a little while, the two met at the bottom of the lane, and when they reached the school, they had it all to themselves. Then they sat together with a slate before them, and Tom gave Becky the pencil and held her hand in his, guiding it, and so created another surprising house. When the interest in art began to wane, the two fell to talking. Tom was swimming in bliss. He said, Do you love rats? No, I hate them. Well, I do too. Live ones. I mean dead ones. To swing around your head with a string. No, I, I don't care for rats too much anyway. What I like is chewing gum. Oh, I should say so. I wish I had some now. Do you? I've got some. I'll let you chew it a while, but you must give it back to me. That was agreeable. So they chewed it in turn and dangled their legs against the bench in excess of contentment. 
Was you ever at a circus, said Tom. Yes, and my pa's going to take me again sometime if I'm good. I've been to the circus three or four times, lots of times. Church, church ain't shucks to a circus. There's things going on at a circus all the time. I'm going to be a clown in the circus when I grow up. Who are you? That'd be nice. You're, you're so lovely all spotted up. Yes, that's so, and they get slathers of money, most a dollar a day. Ben Rogers says, say, Becky, was you ever engaged? What's that? Why, engaged to be married? No. Would you like to? Mm, I reckon so. I don't know. What's it like? Like? Why, it ain't like anything. You only just tell a boy you won't ever have anybody but him. Ever, ever, ever. And then you kiss, and that's all. Anybody can do it. Kiss? What do you kiss for? Why, that, you know, is to, uh, well, uh, they always do that. Everybody? Well, yes, everybody that's in love with each other. Do you remember what I wrote on the slate? Y uh, yes. What was it? I shan't tell you. Shall I tell you? Yes, but some other time. No, now. No, not now. Tomorrow. Oh, no. Now, please, Becky, I'll whisper it. I'll whisper it ever so easy. Becky, hesitating. Tom took silence for consent and passed his arm around her waist and whispered the tale ever so softly, with his mouth close to her ear. And then he added, Now you whisper it to me just the same. She resisted for a while, and then said, You turn your face away so you can't see, and then I will. But you mustn't never tell anybody, will you, Tom? Now you won't, will you? Oh, no, indeed I won't, now, Becky. He turned his face away. She bent timidly around until her breath stirred his curls and whispered, I love you. He turned his face away. She bent timidly around until her breath stirred his curls. Then she sprang away and ran around and around the desks and benches with Tom after her and took refuge in a corner at last with her little white apron to her face. Tom clasped her about her neck and pleaded, Now, Becky, it's all done. It's all over but the kiss. Don't you be afraid of that. Taint nothing at all. Please, Becky. And he tugged at her apron and her hands. By and by, she gave up, let her hands drop, her face all glowing with the struggle, came up and submitted. Tom kissed the red lips and said, Now it's all done, Becky. And always after this, you know, you ain't ever to love anybody but me. And you ain't ever to marry anybody but me. Never, ever, and forever, will you? No, I'll never love anybody but you, Tom. And I'll never marry anybody but you. And you ain't to ever marry anybody either but me. Certainly, of course, that's part of it. 
and always coming to school or when we're going home, you're going to walk with me and there ain't nobody looking. You choose me and I choose you at parties because that's the way you do it when you're engaged. Oh, it's nice. I never heard of that before. Oh, it's ever so gay. Why, me and Amy Lawrence, the big eyes told Tom his blunder and he'd stopped confused. Oh, Tom, then I ain't the first you've ever been engaged to? The child began to cry, and Tom said, Oh, don't cry, Becky. I, I don't care for her anymore. Mm, yes, you do, Tom. You know you do. Tom tried to put his arm around her neck, but she pushed him away and turned her face to the wall and went on crying. Tom tried again with soothing words in his mouth, and he was repulsed again, and then his pride was up, and he strode away and went outside. He stood about, restless, uneasy for a while, glancing at the door, every now and then hoping she'd repent and come to find him, but she did not. And then he began to feel badly and fear that he was in the wrong. It was a hard struggle with him to make new advances now, but he nerved himself to it and entered. She was still standing back there in the corner, sobbing, with her face to the wall. Tom's heart smote him. He went to her, stood a moment, not knowing exactly how to proceed, and then he said hesitantly, Becky, I, I don't care for anybody else but but you. No reply, but sobs. Becky, pleading, Becky, won't you say something? More sobs. Tom got out his chiefest jewel, a brass knob from the top of an andiron, and passed it around her so she could see it, and said, Please, Becky, won't you take it? She struck it to the floor. Then Tom marched out of the house and over the hills and far away to return to school no more that day. Presently, Becky began to suspect. She ran to the door. He wasn't in sight. She flew around to the play yard. He wasn't there. And then she called, Tom, come back, Tom. She listened intently, but there was no answer. She had no companions but silence and loneliness. So she sat down to cry again and upbraid herself. By this time, the scholars began to gather again. She had to hide her griefs and still her broken heart and take up the cross of a long, dreary, aching afternoon with none among the strangers about her to exchange her sorrow. That's chapter seven of the adventures of Tom Sawyer. <laughs> we'll move into chapter eight from Tom Sawyer on Saturday night. All right, folks, that's it. Thanks so much for joining. I will see you again Saturday night at 10 Malaysian time. Thanks to all of our listeners and viewers. Be sure and hit that follow and subscribe button on YouTube and Facebook and Rumble dot com and uh, I will see you again Saturday night until then I'm Jay Sheldon I'm not wearing pants good night <laughs>